Section 24 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Third Decade, Chapter 2, From the Occupation of Calais to the Battle of Poitiers. The events which took place on the continent during this period, the indecisive battles, the endless repetition of negotiations for peace and preparations for war, may be dismissed as of minor importance till we come to the expedition of the Prince of Wales ending in the victory of Poitiers, which laid France prostrate at the feet of the invader and sent her king a prisoner to London. It is, however, impossible to omit all mention of the famous sea-fight of L'Espagnol-sur-Mer, in which the naval pride of Spain was first humbled by an English fleet, and which vindicated for Edward III his proudest and best-deserved title of King of the Sea. The splendid land victories associated with the memory of his reign are properly victories of the Prince of Wales, but here, as before in the naval engagement off Schloss, it was the valor and prowess of the king himself which won the day. It is difficult to account for an invasion of England by the Spaniards at this time, but we may reasonably suppose, in the absence of any alleged grounds for hostility between England and Spain, that it was at least concerted with the French sovereign. Charles of Spain, who commanded the Spanish fleet, was the younger brother of Louis of Spain, Marshal of France, both belonging to that dynasty of La Cerda, which ought by right of primogeniture to have been occupying the throne of Castile. For the famous Alfonso X, the last undisputed sovereign had left two sons, the elder, called from an unenviable peculiarity of physical structure, Ferdinand de la Cerda, or Ferdinand with the bristle, and the younger, Sancho, who usurped the throne and was great-grandfather of Pedro the Cruel, the reigning king. But Ferdinand, the deprived infanta of Castile, had married Blanche, sister of Philip the Fair. And thus the branch of La Cerda were near kinsmen of the royal house of France. It is important to keep these relationships in mind, partly as explaining the present conduct of Charles of Spain, and partly as bearing upon other events hereafter to be described. The battle was fought out at sea, the English having weighed from Sandwich, the Spaniards from the harbour of Schluss. While the fleets were advancing across the channel to meet each other, King Edward, who commanded in person, sat in the bow of the cog Thomas, in a black velvet jacket and a beaver hat, which became him well, and passed the time away joyously, listening to his minstrel's music and the songs which John of Chandos had brought home from Germany but ever and anon turning up his eye to the lookout on the masthead to know if the enemy was yet in sight. At last the man on the watch shouted, I see a ship, and she looks like a Spaniard. Then again, I see two, three, four of them, and again, God help me, I see so many that I cannot count them. At the first onset the Cog Thomas was struck so hard amidships by a huge Spanish neef that her mainmast went by the board and she began to take in water. They thought she was sinking, so they grappled her fast to another great Spanish ship, and the king and the English knights and nobles, 
for it was by them that this battle was fought and won, swarmed up on to the decks of the tall Spaniard, beat back her crew with swords and hatchets, and threw every soldier into the sea. Then manning her with English seamen and casting off their own sinking ship, they bore down in their prize upon the remaining Spaniards, some twenty of which were ultimately boarded or sent to the bottom, not a single sailor in a captured ship being taken to mercy. The Prince of Wales, too, grappled the Spanish Neef of immense size and carried her after a furious fight just in time to see his own ship go down. Another English vessel got disabled and entangled with the Spaniard, which, seeing her helpless condition, made sail and was carrying her off to sea, but a varlet named Hanekin climbed up the side and leaped on the deck of the Neef in the middle of her crew, and before they could stop him, cut the halyards of the mainsail, which, coming down with a run upon the deck, the English boarded the Spaniard in the confusion, threw her crew overboard, and steered her back as an English ship into the battle. A week before this engagement took place, King Philip of France died, and was succeeded by his son John, Duke of Normandy. But the conditions of the international quarrel were in no way affected by the change of sovereign. For four or five years, however, there was a cessation of overt hostilities. The English people generally were getting heartily tired of the war. But the king and his barons were getting equally tired of inaction. And after various and probably half-hearted endeavors for peace, constantly stultified by mutual aggressions, in the year 1355, a second tripartite expedition was planned by England against France. One army under the Prince of Wales was to land at Bordeaux, a second to reinforce the Countess of Montfort in a renewed struggle with Charles of Blois, who had at length ransomed himself out of his captivity in the tower, and a third, under the king in person, was to make a descent upon Normandy by way of Cherbourg. For Edward had got a new ally and supporter in that quarter, though he soon proved a broken reed, in the person of the very man who, had the English king's view of the rights of succession been established, ought to have been on the throne of France. Charles the Bad, King of Navarre, was now in his twenty-third year, and had succeeded to the royal title on the death of his mother, the daughter of King Louis X of France, in 1345. His right to the French crown was clearly better than that of Edward III, for whereas Edward claimed it as eldest grandson of Philip IV, Charles of Navarre stood in that relationship to a more recent sovereign. He was also from his father, King Consort of Navarre, the inheritor of the earldom of Evreux in Normandy, and as such, a feudatory of the French crown. It was natural under all the circumstances that the son of Philip of Valois should wish to be on friendly terms with this powerful vassal, and King John accordingly invited him to his court and affianced him to his daughter. But Charles seems to have had just cause of complaint against his royal father-in-law, who, amongst other injuries, had withheld from him his wife's stipulated dower, and had taken advantage of certain complications which had arisen to bestow two French counties, the ancient appanage of the Navarrese crown, on his favorite, Charles de la Cerda, 
whom he made constable of France in 1350. Shortly before the time at which we have now arrived, Charles of Navarre had treacherously assassinated his rival, Charles of Spain, and fled across the French frontier to Avignon, where he met and entered into correspondence with Lancaster of the Rhineck, then on a mission from Edward to Pope Clement VI, and elevated, since we last heard of him, to a dukedom, the second created in England since the Norman conquest. John had, in the absence of the King of Navarre, invaded Normandy and seized upon several of the fortresses belonging to his earldom. So Charles, in revenge, agreed with King Edward to give him possession of Cherbourg and other strong places in Normandy, which would enable him to land troops unmolested and give him a safe approach to within a few leagues of Paris. He also promised to support the English king with a fleet manned with his own subjects from Spain. This promise he kept, and landing at Cherbourg awaited the arrival of the expedition from England. But the fleet had been driven back by storms, and in the meantime Charles, whose patience was soon exhausted, had suffered himself to be reconciled to the king of France, and had entered into alliance with him. Edward, hearing that his new confederate had already deserted him, and that John was getting an army together, determined to invade France by way of Calais, and landing there laid waste to Picardy and Artois. John advanced to meet him, but after mutual challenges, as usual, more or less courteously declined, the two armies withdrew, and Edward returned to England to repel a new inroad of the Scotch, an inroad so fiercely avenged in the opening of the following year, 1356, by the havoc and destruction of the Lothians, that this fatal February was talked of for long years after as the burnt Candlemas. When news was brought to Edward at Calais that the town of Berwick was in danger of falling into the hands of the Scots, he swore an oath that he would sleep no more than one night in any town before he arrived there to raise the siege. This oath he certainly did not keep, for he took time on his way to hold a parliament in London and fortify himself by a larger subsidy than had ever before been granted to him, namely fifty shillings a sack on exported wool. The quantity of wool at this time annually sent out of the country averaging no less than one hundred thousand sacks. He had also to collect an army which consisted of between twenty and thirty thousand men. For this time, Edward was determined on the final and complete subjection of Scotland. King David Bruce was still a prisoner in his hands, owing to the failure of negotiations for his ransom which had been going on for ten years since the Battle of Neville's Cross. Edward's dear cousin, Edward Balliol, King of Scotland, whose fortunes had steadily declined since the time of his audacious snatch at the crown, was now induced finally to surrender any rights he might be supposed to possess by the form of picking up Scottish earth and stones and handing them to the English king in consideration of a round sum of money down and a pension of £2,000 a year to be paid quarterly. He lived for seven years longer as a private gentleman in Yorkshire and the respect with which the ex-sovereign was regarded may be judged of by the following extract from a royal proclamation. Know that whereas our dear cousin Edward Balliol, King of Scotland, 
at various times hunted and took sixteen stags, six hinds, eight staggards, three fawns, and six roe deer in the park, and fished in the ponds and took two pike of three and a half feet long, three of three feet, twenty of which were some two and a half feet long, and also one hundred and nine perch, roach, tench, and skellies, and six breams and bremettes. We, listening to the supplication of the said Edward, have pardoned him. The English relieved Berwick, but at Edinburgh their progress was arrested by want of provisions, the fleet which ought to have met them at Leith being driven back by a storm, and there was nothing for it but an ignominious and indeed disastrous retreat. For the Scots swarmed in every thicket they passed, and hovered on their rear, cutting off the stragglers and wounded as they fell behind. Early the following year, 1357, negotiations for the ransom of David were renewed, and at its close he was at last released, the Scotch stipulating to pay a sum of 100,000 marks in twenty half-yearly installments, and to keep the peace till the money was all paid. Twenty of the heirs of the principal Scotch families were given and accepted as hostages, and in default of payment, David was to surrender himself again to captivity. Before King Edward, abandoning his share in the triple invasion of France, hastened off to the relief of Berwick, the Prince of Wales had already landed at Bordeaux. Though in his own account of his campaigns he speaks of having been disappointed in his expectations, of effecting a junction with the Duke of Lancaster, who, it will be remembered, was sent into Brittany to fight for the de Montforts. It is difficult to believe that there was any concerted plan of action among the three divisions of the invading army, the most formidable which had yet left the English shores. The first campaign of the prince, that of the autumn of 1355, began and ended in a successful but inglorious marauding reign upon the neighbors of the Gascon lords who planned it, a people good and simple who did not know what war was. They shunned the fortresses and plundered the undefended villages and country from the English border to the Mediterranean shore, and returned home laden with spoil, wrung from unoffending and defenseless peasants and townsfolk. His second campaign will be described in the next chapter. It was of a similar character, but so rashly planned and improvidently conducted that like Edward's retreat ten years before, it must have ended in irreparable disaster had it not been for the almost incredible blundering of the French leaders and the indomitable spirit of endurance which gave final victory to a handful of Englishmen driven into a corner over-organized armies of tens of thousands led on by all the chivalry of France. The Battle of Agincourt, sixty years later, was like that of Poitiers over again. In both of these, the French crown was at stake, and in both it was practically lost. But there was this enormous difference, that Henry V at Agincourt, as elsewhere, was in earnest, and the Edwards, father and son, were not. For had they been so, the Black Prince, after the Battle of Poitiers, might and would have marched unopposed through the heart of France and dictated his own terms in her capital. End of section 24